The Athletic. First World Cup in Asia, the first across two countries, Japan and South Korea. Early alarms for the action, cornflakes and lager, classes cancelled and school assemblies assembled to catch the matches. The metatarsal of David Beckham, his recovery, renaissance and revenge, a first glimpse at the golden generation ended by Ronaldinho's cross-come shot and then a flow of Seaman's tears. Saipan, the Irish Civil War, Roy versus Mick and what might have been. World champions France flopped, so did Italy and Argentina and Portugal. And when did Holland kick off? First time as Senegal shined, Turkey surprised, and the host nations did far more than just host. Brazil were back, Ronaldo was back with a fresh trim. There's Rusto's war paint, Rivaldo's play acting, and questionable Sven trims, and even more questionable referees. Welcome to the Athletic Football Podcast special on the 2002 World Cup Finals, 20 years on. Right, what a treat we've got for you today going back over this. Some of you have contributed to your memories and we're going to get a lot more from our senior writer for The Athletic, Don Fifield, who was in Korea, while Laurie Whitwell's with us as well. And he was in class. Of course, he's the Manchester United correspondent for The Athletic as well. Over the course of the show, we'll hear from the likes of James Horncastle on how Italy were uh, robbed. Mr Football Clichés Adam Hurry will give us his own personal top five moments. Plus, what did Luis Philippe Scolari tell Jack Lang about that England game and more as we revive all our memories of that tournament 20 years ago. Dom, I need to start with you then. What were you up to? Where were you? <laughs> I, I was in Korea for the for about 13 games, I think I covered um, for The Guardian at the time. It was my first World Cup, uh, first tournament uh, as a journalist, um, and probably still my most memorable, although saying that, <laughs> asking me to go back 20 years and 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 pinpoint exactly what I was doing at any one point is 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 proving a challenge <laughs> for somebody who can't even remember what he was doing last week um but it was honestly it was a sensational tournament and uh, and a really different feel to it all i mean obviously it's something i can only judge having done subsequent tournaments in all all around the, the world but but the, the, certainly the south korean experience felt unique it felt like a, a nation that, that was almost pinching itself that it was hosting a tournament like that. Um, it was so conscious of how it stood on an international sta- basis. It wanted to, to show the world its best side. And, uh, well, I think it did, ultimately. I mean, my memories of it are all tainted by... Uh, not tainted, they're all coloured by, you know, Be the Reds, which is what they the, 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 the fans chanted and was emblazoned across all their T-shirts for the month long I was out there I think yeah they did amazingly as well which we'll get to I'm sure during the course of this podcast Laurie you were still learning where Korea was wasn't you you were in geography at this point <laughs> not sure I, I even know now particularly um yeah no I was in school though 15 um and for some reason the thing that sticks in my head is the kind of summertime polo shirt that you used to have that I watched the matches in in assembly and, and sort of pulled it over my knees like while she sat down on the floor uh, and then at 15 yeah I don't know why uh, I don't know why that was what we were wearing was, was it summertime was it hot 
Um, I don't know. Did you have to sit on the floor at 15 still at your school? I think it was just because to cram everyone in the in the assembly, you know, to kind of, they made yeah. a, a special effort to um, allow everyone to watch it. And it was all, because all, all the group games were kind of during the day, weren't they? And the one that sticks in my mind is the Nigeria one, which I think was a bit earlier. So they kind of got us all in a, a little bit earlier and allowed us uh, to kind of watch it all together and, and celebrate that glorious nil-nil draw that obviously qualified England for the knockout <laughs> phase. <laughs> Yeah, you're you're only a year younger than me in school years, and I, my memories of it are totally different because I was in the middle of my GCSEs when this tournament was going on, uh, and actually the first match of the tournament, France versus Senegal, and that incredible shock, probably one of the biggest shocks in World Cup history, to be fair, even to this day. Actually, I had to stop watching because I needed to go to my first exam. Um, but it did mean that I could watch quite a lot of the tournament because you were supposed to be revising or, you know, a lot of the time it was early mornings. I can remember vividly sat up in bed with my dad, probably the last time I've ever got in bed with my dad, eating cornflakes and watching the matches because they kicked off so early because, of course, they were on the other side of the world. It was a totally different experience to any other World Cup in that sense. Um for England as well, Dom, it, it was quite a ride, wasn't it? And we have to start with everything surrounding David Beckham because this was his tournament in a very different sense to 1998. Arguably the most recognisable footballer in the world. Yes! Yes for England! David Beckham has done it big time! Yeah, I mean... I think you need a bit of context, don't you, with with England and Sven Jorn Eriksson had had revived the England national team to a certain extent after you know the disaster of Euro two thousand, um, that, that glorious win in Munich, the five one, and Michael Owen's hat trick, and then and then Beckham sort of grasping this group and you know peak peak David Beckham um, when England were floundering in their final qualifier against Greece needing a point to get through a 2-1 down in stoppage time at the end and he curls the free kick in from from distance to, to guarantee England's progress you know potentially at the expense of Germany although they obviously go and qualify uh, via a playoff um, so I think the nation travelled with a certain amount of optimism but well, at least it would have done had Aldo Ducher not gone and done David Beckham's metatarsal in the quarterfinal of the Champions League. We also it's literally the only thing that Aldo Ducher is known for, isn't <laughs> yeah, it? Certainly in, in, in the UK, anyway. <laughs> but it was he wasn't. I mean, it was the metatarsal wasn't a thing. We didn't know no. about. No one talked about metatarsals <laughs> at all. And then you just broke your foot. Yeah, you, exactly. You? Yeah. Broke a toe or whatever. But yeah. Gary Neville also did it. He was ruled out of the tournament with it. I mean, that's the reason Danny Mills played in the in, in the games um, over in Japan and and. So to lose two key players to metastasis, I mean, I mean, I know Beckham was there in body, um, just about, um, and he tried hard, and but he, and he, obviously, we will always remember his his the redemption of his penalty against Argentina in the group stage, which yeah. England's England's victory in the group. But I don't think he was ever really the player that had been he'd been in qualifying. He wasn't the player that had torn it up so much for United and for England to get to that final. So. It was almost the first high-profile occasion of a of that debate as to whether you should whether you should take an injured player or whether you should rely on Yuri Geller to get a, a player to to a World Cup after all. <laughs> You're right to name check Yuri because uh, this was sort of the, the height of his star in a sense as well. I remember, <laughs> uh, forget bending spoons. I remember everyone having to touch 
was it a picture of Beckham's boot on on yeah, GMTV on on English television morning TV and and summoned the energy to try and get his his boot to heal there was a front page of the sun as well where everyone had to touch the boot to try and send positive energy towards it to try and heal his foot he was using oxygen tanks before we knew what oxygen tanks really were Laurie what were your memories of the the desperate bid from the nation to get David Beckham fit for Korea and Japan? Well, obviously with the Man United slant on, I think that was my primary uh, concern when he when he did his footing. Uh, but then obviously you kind of turn to the summer tournament and yeah, Yuri Geller, you know, he'd had success, hadn't he, at Euro 96 with his uh, moving of the ball for uh, Gary McAllister's penalty, which, you know, I think everyone sort of thought, I'd right, well, if about he, that. If Maybe he... that was the height of his fame, actually. <laughs> That's what it actually was. trying to cling on. <laughs> I think that's yeah. what he was dining out on when he was he was brought back. You know what was it? Six years later for this this event, um, and everyone was like, "Yeah, if if Yuri can sort it again, we're all right." Um, but I don't if know, he can bend a spoon, he can do anything. That man, he can bend Beckham's metatarsal back yeah. into shape. Um, but then it became a thing, didn't it? I mean, Rooney had one, and you're right, Dom. Like it, it suddenly became this thing that you know, sort of six, seven weeks out from a tournament, players high profile for England kept getting these metatarsal you injuries. You weren't a player unless you had a fashionable metatarsal injury. <laughs> 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 and a moon boot. And a moon boot, yeah. Yeah, sort of pat pictures of moon boots was a was a thing for a little while, wasn't it, to sort of check on Beckham's progress in his recovery. Um, do you think we have learned any lessons, Laurie, or do you think that heading into the, the World Cup in the winter, if Harry Kane was to do his metatarsal, Yuri Geller would get wheeled out again and we'd be desperate <laughs> to get him there, whatever shape he's in? Well, well Harry Kane, I, I'm right. It, was it a metatarsal that he was injured before Spurs' Champions League final against Liverpool? Or was it his ankle again? His ankle. Usually ankle, his ankle, sorry. ankle yeah. So, I mean... Well, he yeah. wasn't exactly fit going into the Euros either, was he really? Didn't he have an issue then as well? Yeah, I mean, so I, I don't know if everyone, you know, I suppose lesson learned. It's, it's always that fine balance, isn't it, between you've got a really great player here who can summon something and obviously Beckham did at this World Cup you know um, Selp Sol Campbell for the opening goal against Sweden scored the penalty against Argentina so he did produce moments and was was a factor for England but yeah you're right it sort of feels like you're kind of willing it on rather than going into a, a side going going into a game with a side full of fitness and full of confidence it's sort of I don't know what whether, whether you draw the line really I mean you know clearly with someone with that experience with that you know, caliber of player, you kind of want them to get in the team, and, and maybe being around the squad is just helpful anyway. So I, I don't know. I reckon, yeah. Still, if I don't know who's who's the biggest player, is, is it Harry Kane for England? Who who is the biggest player at the moment? Really, that you kind of go, you, you know, England need him to be fully fit and firing, and, and even if he's not quite a hundred percent, you know, um, the manager will take him anyway. The thing about Beckham, though, maybe it was with the benefit of hindsight, but in the in the Brazil quarter final, the suggestion was he pulled out the tackle. Um, mm. protecting that that foot in the build-up to, I think it was Brazil's equaliser, wasn't it? The Rivaldo That's goal. That's right. Um, yeah. Great run from Ronaldinho through the middle of the, the pitch and then a little slip pass to Rivaldo to finish. But but if, if and clearly that the injury was playing on his mind. I mean, clearly he, he knew that he wasn't fit and he didn't want to risk aggravating, you know, <laughs> basically having the, having the, the bone hurt again. Um, and if... To that to that end, it's a, those little moments, those little incidents within games. That, that's if they're having that kind of effect, if, it, if it's making him pull out of a tackle, then that carries a certain amount of a risk for a manager as well. I'd imagine. Yeah, there was also the, sort of the first. I said it at the top, the first glimpse of the golden generation, and a sense that we were going there with a collection of footballers who all needed to be in the starting eleven one way or another, including a half fit David Beckham. But we had real optimism, and, and there was a 
almost an expectation. Is that fair that we could do something at this tournament because of all these players? Yeah, and because of the manager as well, because at the time Sven Johan Eriksson was considered to be one of the you know the elite managers in, in world football, and and he what he'd done, what he'd inspired in that qualification campaign, not least in that game in Munich, gave the nation hope that this you know that long drought might might eventually end. Um, I think as the tournament went on, although England didn't, other than maybe the Denmark game. Um, where we won so comfortably, uh, we we didn't really play brilliant brilliantly at any point. We didn't. We, it was it was more a case of grinding out results almost to to to, to maintain progress. Um, but which which sounds vaguely familiar actually. Um, <laughs> but when you see all the other nations that were dropping by the wayside at the time, it just felt like an opportunity there. And you know, it came with its usual sense of almost ominous sense of wait a minute have we done enough here I mean finishing second in the group which meant that you were going to meet Brazil in the quarters as opposed to the semi-finals um finishing second in the group to to Sweden as well I mean just just Mm. on 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 goals goals scored I think it was I mean it was just it felt little things like that it's it's almost the first up first time and it and it probably dogged England through tournaments thereafter um, where you always thought there was there was always a bit more that this golden generation could give. They could always do something slightly more than they were actually delivering out on the pitch. And um, yeah, they sort of it was sort of tantalising, wasn't it? There's an opportunity here. You're one nil up against Brazil. You end up playing against ten men because when Ardinia gets sent off, this is a chance to really grab the tournament and make make it your own. And they never quite managed it. And that's probably the story of both the golden generation and Ericsson's time as England manager. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Before we get into that infamous exit then against Brazil, let's hear from Jack Lang, who has spoken to the Brazil manager of the time, Luis Felipe Scolari, about that game. The one match that comes immediately to mind when I think of the 2002 World Cup is the quarterfinal between Brazil and England. The did he mean it, did he not Ronaldinho free kick game um, I mean just visually it was just such an iconic game in my head I can still see that vaguely generic stadium in Shizuoka the players belting out the anthems um, all very pro Evo too and the game itself was I mean for a long time until the kind of Southgate era it was the peak of what England could do you know going toe to toe with Brazil eventually ending in defeat. But for Brazil too, it was a really important game on their on their route to winning the World Cup. They'd had a fairly easy group stage. They'd beaten Belgium in the second round. And for this game, I spoke to quite a few of the players and the manager, Luis Felipe Scolari, for a piece a couple of years ago. Uh, it was quite an interesting one for them. So Scolari kind of changed the team that had been working until that point, took out Juninho, put in Cleberson to kind of steady things up. He said he'd been working quite a lot on playing with 10 men, which Brazil needed when Ronaldinho was sent off with half an hour to play. Um, one of the great goals of the tournament, scored by Hivaldo, and actually two or three of the players referenced the build-up to that goal, not just the passing and Ronaldinho's brilliance, but actually David Beckham's pretty weak challenge near the touchline as a turning point. So Hockey Junior and Hivaldo himself said, look, 
when when they've watched it back they look at it and think well there's no way we would have pulled out of that challenge like jumped over it and they kind of saw that as a a little chink in the England armour really and then of course you've got that looping goal over David Seaman's head Ronaldinho's always claimed he meant it Ronaldinho takes and David Seaman's call off his line and Brazil take the lead and he said Cafu kind of told him when they were walking over to the ball look look, he's a bit off his line uh, personally not too sure about that because I don't think he was that far off his line and actually um, both Scolari and Hivaldo said uh, to be honest probably was a cross but again one of the great mysteries a little bit of uncertainty always adds a bit to iconic World Cup matches and yeah that's one I will always remember Right Jack's spoken about it there Laurie what do you remember about the cross come shot I think it was a shot wasn't it after all this time Ronaldinho is one of those footballers that you can give the credit for something like this I I remember David Seaman's tears at the end the ponytail uh, I think actually the montage on television of of England's exit was played out to Oasis "Stop Crying Your Heart Out," which I can still hear now. It felt really painful. <laughs> yeah, um, I think as Dom said there, all those elements you sort of think, how did England not seize that moment? Because they did have the opportunity, didn't they? They, they looked knackered by the end of it. I mean, in terms of Ronaldinho's free kick, yeah, I, I would say he meant it. We've seen. Glorious goals that he scored from unusual angles. I mean, that, that one at Stamford Bridge for Barcelona really stands in the mind. Um, and if anyone's going to try something like that, he says he meant it, doesn't he? You know, David Seaman says he didn't mean it, but I think he perhaps would say that because it's better for a goalkeeper to be caught out by a piece of fluke than a piece of magic, right? Um, I think he, he takes, a, <laughs> takes a little bit of a step, doesn't he, Seaman, as well? Um, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, that's I, the first time I remember steps for goalkeepers being properly <laughs> analysed as well. To be fair, maybe that's more to do with my age than anything else. But I remember there being a real in-depth analysis of ex- <laughs> his exact body movements at that time, and, and maybe like virtual reality of where he would have been stood if he'd not taken that step, and he would have caught it yeah, easily. That ghost thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, clearly it was. Uh, you, you had that Brazil t- and, and they had some great skill about them clearly you know that silky sort of trio of Rivaldo Ronaldinho and Ronaldo that were all on fire um, but also a bit of steel about them I mean Cleverson in midfield I think had a, a really good World Cup and United went and signed him after that um, that was, went well yeah <laughs> didn't quite produce the same form did he um, in a red shirt as a, as a yellow one but um, but yeah, I think they, they seem to have a nous, you know so even when England went ahead you kind of weren't really sure that they were, they had the substance to, to hold it out and, and clearly the heat, the fatigue. I mean, you know, we talked about injuries before. They did have a few other injuries in terms of, you know, I think Danny Murphy had sort of also sustained a metatarsal injury. And I know he's perhaps a peripheral figure, but it meant that Sven had to kind of pick another player and you had Trevor Sinclair who'd was originally called up and then flew back home to be with his pregnant wife and then got recalled up again so he had to do the long haul flight all over again so was he you know peak fitness for this quarterfinal I don't know so you know I think ultimately Brazil were the better team and and even with 10 men they showed it I'd forgotten the 10 men thing to be honest Dom now you've said it I remember it clearly that Ronaldinho was sent off but at the time it's a nasty um, challenge sorry. as well it's a nasty challenge on yeah, Danny Wills when when sort of going back over some of the memories, I'd I'd completely forgotten that he was sent off. That was part of the narrative that had got lost in the tears and the ponytail and the cross come <laughs> shot. To be fair, 
I watched that for the as research purposes because I wouldn't watch it for any other reason. The the Ronaldinho um, <laughs> goal again. It's it is sensational. He's got absolutely no right to put it into that corner. I mean, no. whether it's a I miss it or not, it, it doesn't look like it. Weirdly, but it's the angle and the distance just make it. Maybe, actually made me feel sorry for David Seaman all over again 20 years on you won't, you won't appreciate that he doesn't he's 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 suffered with that for, for two decades now but um, but my word it was but that that summed up you're right the, the individual brilliance of those three Rivaldo, Ronaldo, Ronaldinho um, really stood that, that that Brazil team out and I've been lucky enough to see them in the group stage over in Korea um, there, there was a, a, the right blend to that team, as Laurie says, a, 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 a real industry and spike and a streetwise um, edge to them all. Um, but then they could just rely on those front three to to do their things. And it, in, in many ways, I mean, that, that, I suppose that's what we want to see in a Brazil team. It was a it was a, it was, it was a sort of classic um, Brazil team that you, you focus is drawn to the to the extravagant, creative, tack, attacking talents at the top end of the pitch. And it's almost like they they've been striving for that in many ways since. Um, to you know the, the obsession with with Neymar when in in a team who maybe doesn't have the same attacking talents that that that, that 2002 had I mean not as many of them um, and it needed the combinations of those three to to unlock team I remember the goal that Ed, I think it was Ed Milson scored against Costa Rica when he's he's a couple of one twos on route I think Rivaldo and Junior was in there and then he's put the scissor scissor kick into the top corner just an absolutely brilliant but at the time, sort of bog standard Brazil goal. That's what you got at World Cups <laughs> with Brazil. But I don't know. That doesn't feel as if that happens quite as often these days. Maybe, no. maybe I'm wrong, but it was it, that. That was a really good classic Brazil team to watch. There's less mystique about Brazil, I think, as well, because we are exposed far more now to seeing these footballers play all the time. But that front three, Laurie, we were certainly exposed to, weren't we? Ronaldinho, Rivaldo, and Ronaldo, who, of course was having his own renaissance after all the drama of the 1998 World Cup final um, and all the stories and speculation about exactly what happened to him. It's still not really been properly clarified. There's still question marks over the theories of, of what he suffered that day. He was probably half fit as well, in a sense, like David Beckham, but he ended up the top scorer and spearheaded a Brazil side that ended up winning the tournament. If anyone needs to know about his level of quality, it was that he could end up winning a World Cup as top goal scorer and not quite be at his best. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there were some great games for Brazil, wasn't there? The um, the Costa Rica one really stands out in terms of the fluid kind of attacking play. Uh, Ronaldo, the thing that stands in my mind really is the, uh, the sort of weird little triangle that he had as his haircut at the front of yeah. his forehead, um, which I don't know if, if that's going to be repeated. It's not quite the, the Beckham hairstyle that everyone went out and rushed to get um, after the curtains or the... Everyone? Well, okay, that was just me. <laughs> the suggestion that was actually a distraction tactic to, to take people's mind off the fact that he was injured. What, the haircut? The haircut, yeah. Oh, wow, really? That's the first... I've heard There's of that. Theory. Wow. <laughs> well, the, Is that your theory, theory as well? well that- no, no, it was he was doing the rounds. It was that was that was what it was that we were talking about at the time. Yeah, yeah. There was a theory as well that his son right, was really haircut. young at the time. <laughs> yeah, his son was really young at the time, or maybe it was his daughter. Forgive me if I've I've not got that quite right. And they needed to recognise their dad playing, or he wanted them to recognise him playing. So he decided to get a haircut that no one else would even think of having, so that when his child watched the Brazil matches, they knew exactly 
who their dad was, um, like which that. is quite a nice story. Yeah. If that's true. I like that one. Um, I prefer that one to be honest. <laughs> so that's maybe a, a different theory as to what the truth is. But one man who certainly got a real close-up view of the haircut, no matter the reasons behind it, was George Culkin. Anyway, I kind of got in and I checked in and it's just pandemonium in this hotel. And it's the day before the England game. Really, it's the biggest game I'm ever going to cover at that point in my career. And it's like, oh God, I'm just so tired, so tired. And I know this will be difficult to sort of understand. It was just, I wanted to go home. I was knackered. Anyway, uh, I still feel ashamed as I tell this story. I got into the lift to go up to my room and just as the door closed, Ronaldo, the original Ronaldo, Brazilian Ronaldo, walked in and it's just me and him in this lift. And any journalist worth their salt the day before this huge match surely would have found a way of asking a question and I just couldn't think of anything. I remember nodding at him <laughs> and the sound of silence only broken up by the tinging of the lift bell as we went past each floor and... He then gets out and I stay in and then I get out and I just had that overwhelming feeling of failure that this was the big test and I'd failed it. A bit like England, I suppose, when uh, when you consider it. Thank you, George. I thought for a moment there, Dom, that he was actually going to say he had one question, and his question was, what's the story behind the haircut? And it was going to put the little um, the little doubt that we had to bed. I mean, in terms of close encounters, it doesn't get much more special than that, does it? In a lift alone with Ronaldo at a World Cup finals that he's about to win. You're absolutely right. It's, I mean, it's mad. That's that's brilliant. But weirdly, I, and I'm not wanting to sort of... Um, again, make out make out that journalists' lives are difficult. I I can completely empathise <laughs> with with George's sense of being absolutely knackered. These 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 events, particularly when you're when he was travelling between Japan and 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 Korea and South Korea. I mean, they're non-stop. And and the other thing about obviously with us at the time being newspaper reporters was was the time difference was such a nightmare. It was you you were you were writing live in the early days of the internet i don't know what was happening at the times where, where george was at the time but 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 the guardian would, would take live copy for the internet i'm pretty sure we filed match reports which went online and then you would you'd be off to try and get the story for the the next morning's papers which which would actually be you know effectively happening in 36 hours in time when you were in korea because it was because you were already ahead and it was you know it was evening time there and and, and morning back home it was it was. It, it took a long time to adjust to that, and the, and the fact that you're basically staying up half the night to talk to editors, and then getting up and doing your day job as well. I mean, I, I don't. Well, I'm not currying sympathy. I, I I think we all appreciated that we were unbelievably fortunate to be at, the, at, at a major tournament like this. But but in the it, it it does great, and I can sort of understand why he would have been dumbfounded when when confronted with such a great opportunity to trump the entire British pe- press pack and get a line from Ronaldo. In the not that he, he probably didn't speak English, so he was probably saved on that front anyway. But but uh, yeah. poor old George. <laughs> Absolutely, I think 
being tired at the tournament beats being tired revising, being yeah, in the pub. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> doing GCSEs and watching the World Cup finals all at the same time. But anyway, um, Laurie, into... I want to know how those exams went, Ian. I want to know, did you pass? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, from memory... Nine A's and two B's. So beautiful. I definitely did something right eating those cornflakes with my dad. <laughs> definitely. Um, right. I promise at the top of this pod, Mr. Football Cliches has been racking his brain for his own top five memories from the 2002 World Cup. Number five feels appropriate. As for my abiding memories of World Cup 2002, these five things immediately leapt out. Number one, Tom Sylvester, an incredible story and perhaps one that would go briefly viral today before everyone quickly got bored of it. But 10-year-old Tom Sylvester, aka Sven Haircut Boy, was, pound for pound, probably the star of the tournament. That summer, after his school encouraged pupils to dress up as someone famous for the day, Tom took the brief to frankly absurdly topical levels. Back home in England as the excitement builds, one ten-year-old boy has taken his love of the game a little too far. Tom Sylvester chose to go bald before his years to look like his hero Sven. There's quite a lot of people in the school who dress up as David Beckham and I thought Sven would be different. His mum said, I tried to encourage him to go as Elvis, but he wouldn't be swayed. I thought he was going to look a prat, but he actually looks pretty good, like a cross between Sven and a Klingon without the wrinkles. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. been a troublesome 24 hours in paradise for Roy Keane. Returning from training today, he refused to comment on his decision to quit the World Cup the night before. His announcement followed an argument with goalkeeping coach Packy Bonner at this training ground. He's been having concerns about his knee and uh, some personal problems which are personal to him and uh, he has to go home. It was a bit of a shock to say the least when I come off training. I didn't, obviously I didn't want him to go home and try to talk him out but... Uh, there was no way I was, was going to do it. Can you even tell us how you're feeling at the moment? I feel uh, very good. Clear conscience. And I'm happy to be going home. Right, next we need to talk about the Republic of Ireland's tournament, which was very different to England's in lots of senses, uh, because it was dominated by one particular incident, the Saipan incident. Roy Keane versus Mick McCarthy, the Irish Civil War Reloaded, and I'm going to let Daniel Taylor set the scene. We actually flew out on the day that Keane basically was originally meant to be was originally leaving Saipan. So I can remember this awful scene where you know us football writers heading out to the massive tournament and basically literally sitting on the plane and getting a message through that Roy Keane of all people has um, basically quit the World Cup and quit Ireland. And that kind of mix of 
oh my god that's like an amazing story and we're about to fly straight into it but also that kind of journalistic sense of oh christ we've actually missed the story we would be up until sort of seven in the morning for because it was a story that was happening in the uk and also over in um, japan so basically there were all negotiations alex ferguson was being brought into it and various other people were sort of getting involved and it was um it was pretty full on and i can just always remember this scene where and funny enough george corkin who's obviously now one of my colleagues but was at that time at the, with the times we were just sitting in this hotel lobby having had zero sleep i mean literally we were sleeping in a chair and would be eating um heat up burgers that you could buy in a in a in a, like a kind of a vending machine which I've never seen it anywhere else in a hotel for you. You know, you basically put put a couple of coins in and this sort of heated up burger would pop out and we would sort of sit there eating this rather unsatisfactory dinner with no sleep, just thinking, oh my God, you know, we're just like absolute zombies covering this amazing story. And I just always remember my sports editor ringing me up after Keane finally went home after like a week or whatever it was of arguments and politics and my sports had to say you know welcome to the world cup it's about to start and just being absolutely shredded in terms of energy and um george colkin i distinctly remember writing from home before i left how ireland's preparations were in stark contrast with england who were in a bit of chaos and then i got on a plane changed at amsterdam to discover that roy Keane had walked out of the island squad in saipan that Ireland was effectively at civil war and had to get straight back on a plane again, couldn't do anything about it and landed to be confronted with, I think, still the biggest story I've ever covered as a journalist because of the magnitude of it, because it was a World Cup. And it was the most perplexing, exhausting stretch of time in my career. I remember the the time difference was such that we were staying up late in Japan to catch the last editions back home and then staying up to see what the next morning's development was. So Keane was back home in Ireland. There was a plane, private plane, apparently ready to bring him back to to Japan if his apology to Mick McCarthy and the squad was good enough we had to go to the team hotel to confront Mick McCarthy first thing in the morning is this enough there was a stretch where I remember being awake for 48 hours dosed up on pro plus tablets and really sort of properly on edge feeling tired and paranoid and exhausted absolutely extraordinary if you've ever seen the film Lost in Translation with Bill Murray uh, you'll perhaps know how I felt. Of course, Ireland went on and did did brilliantly in the tourna- tournament, all things considered. But it was just a bizarre, bizarre time. You know, I mean, it was. I mean, it might sound dramatic, but that, it was the biggest story in the world at that time. It also it felt like, and if that sounds like I'm exaggerating, I remember very much that it was on the front page of the Delhi Times, and that was at a time to put it into context when. India and Pakistan were were meant to be on the brink of nuclear war or, you know, and it was just, it still managed to get on the front page of a newspaper sort of halfway around the world. So it was just um, absolutely full on. And my the only potential saving grace is that social media didn't exist at that time, because I think if it did, then all of our heads would have truly popped. What a moment this was, Laurie. Um and even after he got home, being chased whilst walking his dogs 
um, by Paps across Cheshire to get a glimpse of Roy Keane and his face while Ireland were playing in the tournament. The whole drama and everything around it, it's probably the story of the World Cup in a sense, uh, beyond England, of course, for, for people here. It's probably the, the biggest story, I mean, I can think of at a World Cup for drama, for kind of intrigue, for that kind of battle between him and Mick McCarthy, two sort of big figures. I mean, Roy Keane was... In the UK, I think. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think I've ever sort of heard a story or, or, or been, you know, sort of seen a story that kind of struck such a chord because you had sort of different voices, um, you know, of their opinions. And, and the fact that Roy Keane, this guy who had dragged Ireland to the World Cup, probably the best player in the world at that point, even, you know, I, I'm not, I don't think I'm exaggerating too much to say that, you know, in terms of what Manchester United were, were doing at the time, you know, three titles back to back, the treble, etc. Um, not too long before that. So um, for him to go, you know, sod this, I'm going home. This, These standards aren't good enough. Um, I mean, there's been books written about it. There's been, been newspaper articles written about it even now, you know, 20 years on. Um, in terms of sort of fresh details that have come out as to why he was so agitated and, and what happened afterwards. Um, clearly, there was kind of a friction between them, I suppose, throughout the whole you know time where Roy Keane had certain uh, ideas about what it was to be Irish football and, um, and, and certainly the standards. I mean, we, we had that, you know, he had a similar thing, didn't he, with Manchester United towards the end of his career there where it was about the kind of practices and, and the, the facilities that were on offer uh, a pre-season camp um, under Carlos Queiroz and um, you know clearly he wasn't going to suffer any fools in his mind and you know he, he stood by his guns didn't he? I mean to, to leave a World Cup um, to, to fly all that way and then come all the way back you know that's somebody whose principles won't be shaken you can say right or wrong you know whether he should have swallowed his pride and just got out there and, and he would have been more fulfilled in life I think you can hear him speak now and he doesn't regret it he, he doesn't think that he did anything wrong and he doesn't think that actually I should have just stayed and, and sort of taken it so explosive story incredible really to, to have that at a, at a pinnacle of a world tournament um, but I kind of had you know admiration for Roy Keane for, for thinking that way you know clearly explosive clearly someone that um, knows his own mind and um, you know has quite extreme views but at the same time he has stuck to his guns there and yeah he came back walked his dogs and was kind of amused that everybody was kind of trying to chase him and get more quotes from him. When I asked yesterday, I put a tweet out to say that we were talking about the 2002 World Cup um, on the Athletic Football Podcast. Lots of Irish fans got in touch to say that their moment of the tournament was Robbie Keane's goal mm. in the last minute against Germany. It was a draw, um, but it felt like a victory, I'm sure, for those Irish fans. Shane Pollard picked that one out. Alan Dooney also said Robbie Keane versus Germany. Uh, it's a great story from Stephen Underwood about how there was lots of limbs in the assembly hall because everyone went crazy when that <laughs> last minute goal went in. I mean, I don't suppose there's going to be many other many other World Cups that have been played in school assembly halls in that sense, Laurie. So this generation of fans around our sort of age, mid-30s and, and slightly younger, will remember very fondly being in school and, and watching these matches. But I think there was a sense with Ireland as well, Dom, that it's what might have been. Laurie said there before about how good Roy Keane was at this point, and this was an Irish team who did really well at this tournament as well without essentially their star player. They, they could have done even better, couldn't they? Well, potentially. I mean, they, they were pretty close, as you say, of, of getting past Spain in the uh, in the knockout phase. I think that's the last 16 they, they, they went out in, and, and that was only on penalties. So, yeah, inevitably, when you lose, when you lose a player of... 
you lose a player of, of Keane's calibre on the eve of the tournament when, when you've you've almost felt as if you, you've you've built the team around him as he's the fulcrum of it all. He was the inspiration. He was the you know the one that was winning Premier League titles every season with Manchester United at the time. Um, yeah, you're inevitably going to wonder what might have been. Um, it, there was almost I don't know. It's, you, you, we're never going to that 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 issue will rumble on forever. I mean the, the whole Saipan and the fallout from Saipan. Uh, it was it was nice to see a few years later when I think it was when Keane's Sunderland came up against McCarthy's Wolves. I think there was a pre-match handshake and it was considered a bit of a sort of reconciliation between the pair. I think because obviously the fallout from it, I mean, Keane did play for Ireland again, but not under McCarthy. I think it was under Brian Kerr that he made his, his last appearances. Um, so to, for them to have some kind of visible reconciliation, having, when the schism had been so wide, I mean, it was so wide and the, and the you know, only have to read the reports of what was said in front of the team in that meeting um, when, you know, McCarthy's holding up the copy of the Irish Times. Um, I mean, it's in in itself. It's just it's just a remarkable element of drama. Although weirdly, I mean, obviously we 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 talked about it a lot of the time. Um, and obviously, it's a massive thing in Ireland. I was listening to a a podcast that was that was done about about the two thousand and two World Cup the other day. Um, the highlights and and you know the, the subplots etc. Keane didn't didn't get a mention, and that that was from an Australian. That was from an Australian site. So it's uh, from a completely neutral standpoint. Um, Keane's absence was like completely glossed over. It wasn't it wasn't a thing, uh, which surprised me as well. So I don't know. Maybe maybe, yeah. maybe it was just something that because because Keane was so high profile in the Premier League and so high profile in Irish football that we obsessed about. Um, with with good reason, but but maybe in the rest of the world it wasn't quite as uh, big an incident. It's sort of been touched upon, Laurie, as we've gone through this, but the way that this World Cup was consumed as well, it's just a totally different thing to now. Fast forward to the winter in Qatar in November, and obviously every single game will be available to all of us at our fingertips. Everyone's phone will have an ability to to keep abreast of the scores at the very least, if not watch every single kick of the tournament. But this was at a time where mobile phones were a thing, but the idea of watching a match on it obviously was something from a sci-fi film. There's a couple of people who, who got in touch on Twitter. Billy Kerr's tweet was a perfect example as well. My late grandfather set his alarm at ridiculous times to tape the matches for me on VHS so I could watch them after school. I mean, we're not going to need to do that, Laurie, are we, this time? No, yeah, I was just thinking when you were saying about phones and, and watching clips, I, I'm sure that was the era of the Nokia 3210, right? Where it, the, the basic... <laughs> play Snake and that was the, about the snake, it. Yeah. The Snake was the big thing on this phone. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, not not football clips. You know, if, if it had, had Ronaldinho's free kick lobbing team, I think it would have been like a couple of pixels, wouldn't it? Like a black dot just moving across from... <laughs> from bottom left to top right, and in, in the in the screen, but um, yeah, it, it's a it, it's a different way of watching it now, isn't it? It's it's all consuming, it's in your face, you know, kind of as it happens. Really, um, is that a good thing? Do we want a bit of mystique about World Cups? Do we kind of want the people that are there to kind of have that um, action first and then kind of relay it? I, I don't know. I'm I kind of quite like the fact that there was perhaps a little bit of a pause and you had to kind of figure out when you were going to watch these games, if you were going to you know, skip your GCSE exams or if you were going to be able to go to the pub and, and watch them. Um, and, and also just being in a crowd, you know, I think that 
we've seen it more, aren't we, where people really make a big event out of these. Um, certainly the Euros, we saw that, didn't we, where you know, get, get down to the pub and um, and kind of make sure you're there nice and early, you know, chuck the, chuck the pint cans up in the air for the videos afterwards. Um, <laughs> I do think that's an element now that that's kind of, the people there probably you don't really want to have you know, uh, Heineken pouring down on you, but actually in, in clips, it looks great, you know. So um, that, that's kind of one for the social media generation, isn't it? Um, I don't think that was back in 2002. No, no, I don't remember anyone throwing pipes <laughs> over each other necessarily. We're, 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 we're sort of, I mean, I've, I'm guilty of this, having just moaned about the time differences and, and Danny's obviously made that point as well. Um, it's quite a European-centric attitude, obviously. Um, <laughs> you know, this, this was... Yeah. this. For all that FIFA <laughs> and the the controversial nature of where they where they host these events, uh, which is obviously you know a massive issue this year with with Qatar, um, Japan and Korea was was almost like that. Pe- people struggled to get their heads around the fact that it was being hosted in a in a nation that had never been to a World Cup in in Japan and another one. In, in South Korea who hadn't won a game in, in the World Cup for four, I think 48 years of trying and 15 attempts so they, they'd never won a match so there was a sort of why why is it happening here and, and almost a, a sense of entitlement probably in Europe and we were definitely guilty of that in, in England you know what why why are we having to do this at this time of the morning and watch these forgetting the fact that in Mexico in 1986 I'm, I'm pretty sure that I would wake up in the morning and find out the results of England's games overnight. I, I, it's not as if it's not as if I I was staying up all night to watch them, etc. I mean, it was, it was as a school kid at the time that was that was impossible. Um, but actually, when you were there, and I think and I think probably for, from what I've, all the reports I've heard from people and you guys have just have maintained that I mean, there was a novelty value about it being at a different time. Um, and 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 the way that certainly in Korea the people bought into this tournament was was amazing and refreshing, and it was just completely new and yeah and 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 novel and and it probably made the tournament work better as a result. I know it was a bit of an issue in Japan where I think the atmosphere and the some of the stadium wasn't quite the same. The pitches had been built further away from the stands, and it wasn't. Once Japan went out, and they weren't, they didn't have the same success as South Korea did by any stretch of the imagination. So I think what enthusiasm locally probably waned a bit. But you know, in Korea, that that nation was propelled forward and carried on the back of the of the World Cup success it enjoyed that year. Number two, Gary Breen, the Serie A star that never was. The Republic of Ireland defender went to the tournament as a free agent, one of the coolest ways to do it, after his Coventry City contract had expired that summer. He scored against Saudi Arabia, centre-backs somehow become irresistible transfer targets after getting a goal or two, and within five days had agreed terms with Inter Milan. After Ireland's World Cup adventure ended, Breen said later, I flew out to Milan, I had the medical, failed the medical, and I still haven't got over it. Number three, Beckham's Argentina sequel. Well, almost. All the focus in that game was on David Beckham's redemption, as well as John Motson's awkward breakfast table analogies. But a closer inspection of that game reveals a fascinating near-deja-vu moment in the second half. Near the halfway line, not a million miles from the equivalent spot where he'd been barged to the turf by Diego Simeone in 1998, Beckham was sent flying again, this time by Juan Pablo Sorin. As the Argentine stood over him, you can just about pinpoint the moment that Beckham, lying flat on his front, thinks about flicking that right boot once more but quickly leapt to his feet instead, probably for the best. 
Okay, the story of this World Cup, of course, is also littered with fascinating stories like France's defeat in the opening game against Senegal, playing in their first ever World Cup finals match and beating the reigning world and European champions after their wins in 1998 and 2000. You had Argentina going out in the group stage, of course, England helping to do that. A Portugal side, a very talented Portugal side, including the likes of Rui Costa and Luis Figo also exiting at the first hurdle and of course the co-host nation we talked about it a moment ago South Korea who knocked out a very talented Italian squad in the round of 16 which was one of the biggest shocks of the tournament as well and quite controversial particularly memorable certainly to our very own James Horncastle. Icky players I still talk about this tournament uh, they can't believe what happened um, I mean, it was a Hall of Fame Italy squad. Uh, to give you some context, you know, Roberto Baggio couldn't get into uh, what was the final 23. He tried to race back in record time from a serious knee injury. Giovanni Trapattoni uh, decided not to call him up. Del Piero um, couldn't um, get off the bench uh, in the first game. Um, you had players like Christian Vieri, uh, Montella, um, Totti, Inzaghi um, up front. Um, you know, at the back you had Maldini, I think it was his last tournament, uh, Nesta, Cannavaro and Buffon in goal. Um, they felt like they could have won this tournament, but clearly the football gods were, were against them. Um, yeah, I mean, even in the group stages, they scored 10 but had five goals disallowed, um, which uh, must be some sort of record. Um, they got through and they played... Uh, the hosts, one of the hosts, South Korea, in uh, an infamous game. Now, you know, whenever Italy played Korea, it brings up bad memories. Uh, 1966, um, going out, a lot of kind of myth-making about that to, you know, goals from dentists um, and things like that. Um, this one was uh, mad. I mean, you know, Buffon saved a penalty early on. Uh, Tomasi had a goal disallowed. Italy were ahead, I think, what, three minutes from time, South Korea equalise, and then An Young-wan um, scored a golden goal um, in the 117th minute. Um, An Young-wan, who was a Perugia player at the time uh, and was told by Perugia's owner that he would never play for Perugia again after scoring that goal. But, you know, you then have um, the referee, Byron Moreno, again, who has become this kind of um, mythical figure in uh, Italian football history, uh, Ecuadorian referee who a year later would, would quit refereeing. I think he'd been suspended twice by the Ecuadorian league, got a 20-game ban for adding 12 minutes of injury time. And uh, and then in, in 2011, um, he was arrested in, in uh, New York's JFK International Airport. Um, uh, go go look at that news story because uh, that is is wild. And, uh, and still to this day, because of... Uh, what a star-studded, glittering team um, Italy had. They they believe that they could have, have won that tournament. Um, yeah, certainly for someone like Christian Vieri, who would miss out on 2006. Um, you know, it was it was very bitter, and it remains very bitter. Yeah, Byron Moreno is quite a character. Um, James hinted at it there, but basically he was sentenced to two and a half years in prison. Uh, for heroin smuggling. Um, that's not something you often hear from a former referee, Dom, is it? 
No. no. <laughs> At the time, it just came across as sour grapes. It genuinely yeah. did. I mean, yeah. You know, the South Koreans celebrated brilliantly. Was it was it not still sour grapes? Are you going to change your mind on it? Well, I don't know. The more you hear about Mr. Moreno, you might start to worry, don't you? <laughs> True, yeah. <laughs> if, if, he, if he's guilty of heroin smuggling, you do think that, you know, throwing a match might be... There are other things, yeah, maybe. Uh, within his realm, true. yeah. Allegedly. It's, it's funny, though, because the, the Korean thing, I mean, they were, they were, they were brilliant. I mean, they, they, they did play superbly well. They, they were almost a precursor to some teams that we admire now in terms of the energy and the um the way they pressed everywhere and they were really aggressive when they did it and i think that just that really got up the sort of established european teams noses they didn't like the fact that they, that, that uh, you know a, a team that had never won a world cup game um, when they beat poland it was their 15th attempt i think in, in the group um they could go out there and just treat them with this disrespect um but they had the they had the power of the nation behind them they had a, a brilliant tactical a manager in Gus Hiddink in charge who just knew what he was doing and knew how to as I say get under established nations skins and bearing in mind that his own Dutch nation hadn't even qualified uh, this was him making amends for that in many ways and 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 ensuring they had a, a presence deep into the tournament um, and you know the way that they they unsettled what Poland Portugal Italy in the knockout Spain uh, and then get to Germany and push Germany as well in the semi-final. That's, that, that's astonishing. That is properly astonishing. Although it has to be said that by the time that they played Spain and that you know Spain were getting two goals, what looked like perfectly two good two goals as well, disallowed. Um, and you're starting to think, oh, this is a bit odd now. This is uh, oh, do FIFA really want the team, one of their host nations, to go really quite a long way into this tournament to ensure that the local the local interest is maintained and it was almost like that was you know had they beaten Germany I think I think possibly the world would have gone enough now enough let's stop <laughs> I love that beating Germany is the barometer like that. <laughs> too far now too far this one that's, that's dreadfully unfair and I, I don't I mean honestly they play were brilliant to watch and I'm not I, I don't want to sound patronising I don't want to sound they, they were just great it was it, yeah. and it was a romantic story of that tournament I remember the captain, Hyung Myung-bo, who was just a majestic veteran centre-half and to a sort of 15-year-old lad who played like a veteran centre-half, he became a bit of a hero of mine as the tournament went on. Um, I thought he was absolutely brilliant. He sticks in my mind far more than some of the attacking talent in the team. But the story of An Yun Hwan being sacked, essentially, by Perugia is quite something, Laurie, isn't it, really? Yeah, I mean, could they get away with that now? I mean, it would, it would seem insane wouldn't it but um listen i guess patriotism runs deep in italy and, and, and perugia especially so yeah um you score a golden goal against us and you know you're not going to ch- pick up a check from us anymore um but was was that golden goal as well, well that's it was that so so was this the actual goal that then made fifa think rethink the whole golden goal thing because didn't didn't like a south korea fan die of a heart attack celebrating it was that the thing I, I don't know about the heart attack, but it is sort of perceived to be that as the, that was the moment that that FIFA wondered whether the golden goal was was fair anymore. Yeah, I don't I don't know about the heart attack. That's a great story. It's true. It's a dreadful one of it, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I've had a Google, uh, and it is sort of correct uh, according to one report. Um, two healthy fans, men's in their twenties, died of heart attacks during Tuesday's riveting match 
Uh, one collapse from South Korea equalised against Italy two minutes from the end of regulation time. Uh, and the police said that there were a few incidents in the street parties triggered by the 2-1 win. So I don't know if it was exactly the golden goal moment that pushed you know, these celebrating fans a little bit too far in their jubilation. But um, I do feel, I, I, for some reason in my mind, that was the match where people went, okay, this is probably a bit too much emotion hinging on one split second and, and people perhaps need to have yeah. a little bit of time to calm down after a goal's been scored to kind of really celebrate a win. Do you know though? For me, heart attacks aside, obviously, um, I missed the golden goal. I, I think it was it was great drama. Um, Don's got his head in his hands. Heart, probably right, heart attacks aside, <laughs> rightly so. Welcome. Um, <laughs> but I don't remember any other extra time goals scored. To be honest, it, it, they're almost become a collector's item because every game seems to go to penalties at the minute. Although actually, saying that in Euro twenty twenty, there was quite a lot of uh, extra time drama, wasn't there? I remember the Italy v Germany game in the 2006 yeah. World Cup. That had a, a couple of extra time goals, didn't it? Which which felt on the edge, felt like you know kind of special moments. But yeah, I think if they've been golden goals, I quite like the, the fact that you've got a little bit of time to kind of adjust and see if the other team can respond. I think kind of the golden goal that they realised. Well, there was a silver goal for a period as well, wasn't there? Where if it got scored uh, and then in the first half of extra time the other team had until the end of that first half to, to come back. And of course, beyond that as well, I mean, South Korea eventually were beaten in the third place playoff by Turkey, who actually finished third in the World Cup. Um, it was only their second ever World Cup finals as well. And the thing about Turkey, Don, that sticks in my mind is absolutely nothing to do with the football and everything to do with the war paint that Rusty Redder <laughs> wore underneath his eyes, which he claimed stopped the shine or the hue of the floodlights in his face uh, when facing up to <laughs> opposition attacks, which was never a thing before and has never been a thing since. But thank you for bringing that to us, Rusty. It worked. It worked for him. That was the main thing. The uh, I I, yeah. I saw I saw them in the I saw them in the group stage um, in the in the Brazil game, and and I probably should have mentioned this in the in the Rivaldo uh, section at the start of the uh, of the pod. Um, we in, it was a game in Ulsan, and if I remember rightly. Yeah, the referee gave Brazil a penalty three minutes from from the end of the match, um, which Rivaldo scored. But the, the Alpi, the former Villa defender, was the player that was penalised, and he, while it was a foul, it was about five yards outside the box, so he got sent off. And then there's this frantic period in what time remains and in stoppage time at the end where where Turkey are pushing and they can't they can't make any inroads, and then Brazil go upfield and, and win a corner. And Rivaldo just stands on the corner with with the ball about ten yards away from him, just refusing to move and get it because he wants he wants the clock to kick, tick down. And I think it was it was a a, a black Blackburn Rovers midfielder, um, two guy. No, it was Hakan Unsal. I, I think I, I think mate, I think he was I think he was at Blackburn. May have got that. No, he was. Yeah, he was a Blackburn Rovers. He played eight games for Blackburn Didn't Rovers. Leave as much of a mark as, <laughs> as two, two guys. guys. To be fair. No, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but he um, he quite frustratedly went over and booted the ball towards Rivaldo for him to take the corner, and it, and obviously hits him on the thigh, and he 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 goes down clutching his face. It could well be a red card here. Hakan Unsal. Well, it didn't hit Rivaldo in the face. He's disappointed with his reaction, but the Blackburn midfielder for Turkey is then sent off, so they reduced to nine to nine men. And this, he didn't deserve that. I mean, that was 
play acting gone absolutely mad. I mean, he, he came out post-match and said, admitted that he'd been, well, admitted he'd been cheating, basically. He said that it, it hadn't hit him on the, anywhere near the face, but but he shouldn't have kicked it at me in the first place, et cetera, et cetera. Um, which, is, which is, you know, you can make it, you can make that what you will. But the most outlandish thing was Haluk Ulusov, the president of the Turkish FA, came out after the match and just launched this incredibly credible two-footed tackle on 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 the South Korean officials, saying they were out of their depth. This game had been this game had been attended by thirty-four Turkish war uh, soldiers, ex-soldiers, vet- war veterans, basically, who had fought in the Korean War. I think four hundred and sixty-one Turkish soldiers died fighting with the UN forces in the Korean War. Um, so there were there were thirty-four of these guys on on site at the game, and um, the, the fella came out with this quote: "We sacrificed one thousand soldiers here to defend the South Koreans, and one Korean has now killed seventy million Turks." We love Koreans, but that man cannot be a referee. I mean, it's just a st- wow. an astonishing quote to come out with post game. Absolutely incredible. And yeah, yeah, and Turkey recovered, as you say, and they got the finished third, which is an incredible achievement in in what would have been what their second World Cup or something like that. It was a second ever World Cup finals. Yeah, that's amazing. right. And amazing. the one that really sticks out to me, of course, South Korea's run absolutely incredible um, to the semi finals, but. Senegal, Laurie, mm. and I think as well because a lot of the players ended up then playing in the Premier League that, that that sort of team is sharper in my mind than maybe some of the others at the time. I mean, you're thinking of El Diouf who came over uh, straight away, Pat Bouba Diop who scored the goal against France in the opening game, even people like Salif Jao as well. Um, and just the shock of the time. I, don't, I, I think in terms of matches that I've witnessed, uh, and watched in, in my lifetime. I can't think of a bigger shock than a team making their debut in the World Cup finals and beating the world champions at the time. I, I just can't think of anything more shocking than that, especially because it was the opening game of yeah. the tournament as well. And I say it's, it's start with a bang and they deserved it, didn't they? I mean, France didn't really do much. Um, that kind of set their tone for their tournament um, as reigning champions, You know, finishing bottom of a group, Denmark, Senegal and Uruguay without winning a game. Um, without scoring a goal, um, it's kind of remarkable. But yeah, that Senegal team brought a lot of vibrancy to the tournament, didn't they? And yeah, I think Papa Boubidiop, um, who has sadly passed away, um, I spoke to Chris Coleman about him actually, who had him at Fulham, and he said that he was one of his favourite players that he worked with. Um, lovely person, um, and he treated everyone with respect. So I think, and that, that kind of shone through at that World Cup. You know, the, the Senegal players they, they really enjoyed that that win, didn't they? It wasn't like, you know, it was kind of business like performance. It was they clearly cared for each other and. You know, that's what a World Cup's all about, isn't it? Sort of players from the same nation coming together and performing to the peak of their abilities and, and beyond, I suppose. And, and that's what they did against France. Yeah, you talk about respect with that side. I remember El Adjouf collecting parking fines around Manchester City Centre for the years afterwards when he was playing for <laughs> Liverpool and Bolton in a, a Hummer uh, that was like mirrored. Uh, it was absolutely dreadful, to be fair. He liked it, clearly. And he also liked just parking his car anywhere he liked. Everyone knew it was his car because who else would have a car like that? Uh, and his favourite haunt was Akbar's Indian restaurant on, on Liverpool Road as well. Um, so, yeah, it sort of became a, a can we spot a large juice in Manchester by walking down the road and seeing this dreadful Hummer outside with a collection of yellow tickets on the windscreen as well. Um, that also set a tone, didn't it? I mean, I remember I was covering Liverpool at the time and... and 
when they went out and signed El Hajjouf and Salif Diao in the summer of 2002 after the World Cup, everybody thought, oh my word, well, what, that this is, these are incredible players that, they've, that, that they're bringing in here because we've just seen them do what they did at, in, in, in Korea and Japan. Um, and they, I mean, dearie me, to say they underwhelmed at Liverpool is, is an <laughs> understatement. I mean, El Hajjouf had his controversies. I remember the spitting incident. In, was that at Celtic? I think it was, yes. a, it was a pretty pretty grim one and Salif Dion it just never really happened for him even though he looked as if he had everything that you know all the attributes you'd expect him to flourish in the Premier League but it almost became a lesson in don't buy players on the back of good World Cups um, unfortunately for Gerard Ullier I don't think he really recovered from the, the club's failure that summer to to really build on previous successes but I mean they were fantastic out there I mean I, I was lucky enough to be at the game against Uruguay in their last group match where I think I think Senegal needed a, a point to get through and Uruguay needed to win. It was 3-0 to Senegal at half-time. Wow. 3-3 with two minutes to go. And then uh, Richard Morales missed an open goal for Uruguay in, the, in stoppage time at the end, which would have put Senegal out and put Uruguay through. Um, but just summed it up. I was also very lucky t- because it, I, I was based in Busan for most of the tournament and, and so were the French. So I spent a, a bit of time going around to their training ground, and and there's there's another thing that, that almost like a recurring theme about French football in in the years since two thousand and two that a supremely talented group of players, a team that had you know won the World Cup in ninety eight, had, had won the Euros in two thousand, had gone to that tournament as as favourites to to make it a hat trick basically of major tournaments, didn't score a goal. Um, didn't win a game, stunk the place out generally, <laughs> and basically squabbled amongst themselves in a in a manner that you would not not believe possible until you see some of the French ant- antics in places like South Africa and in subsequent years, and e- even last summer for that matter. Um, I mean, just the 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 the, the infighting in that script in that group, Roger Lemaire's group, was incredible. And doing it in public as well. You get Frank LeBeouf come out and criticizing Yuri Jorker for trying naive passes in the <laughs> opponent's half and, and David Trezeguet getting slaughtered by his teammates for not putting any effort in and and Lemaire coming out and saying, Oh no, you know, once once Zidane's back we'll be fine but we can play without him anyway. No, you can't. You, you si- simply couldn't they didn't create anything. They were awful. Thierry Henry getting sent off against Uruguay in the second game. I mean it's it was just from start to finish, it was just a litany of disaster for them and it was but it was great to cover because it just, it was such a shock. I mean, everybody thought they were going to win it, and they just they were hopeless. And on one side that we've not mentioned, and I can hear our American listeners screaming at whatever device they're listening to this podcast on. We've not talked about the USA, who of course got to the quarterfinals, um, their best ever performance in the modern era at a World Cup finals as well, and came out of a group with South Korea, which actually left a very talented, like we've been saying, Portuguese side out at the group stage, just like France, and a huge amount of disappointment around them because, again, a very, very, a very, very talented team, including Luis Figo, who was a huge star at the time, Rui Costa as well, Fernando Couto was the captain, the centre-half, lots of talent in that side. Yeah, look, another missed opportunity for them. But, I mean, I suppose, I suppose Portugal had underwhelmed... Um, they didn't have they didn't have maybe the, the the reputation as an as a nation at major tournaments quite so much in recent in recent times. 
leading up to 2002, but it was their golden generation. So that it had travelled with an awful lot of hope and ambition, aspirations, and and it and yeah, they they fell foul of the in in the group stage. But on on the states, um, I've just. Again, I have to jog my memory, but I, I was at I was at their game, the, the knockout game against Mexico, which I think is the game that they they still celebrate the two 0 win over their, their their fiercest rivals. Um, it was the sort of the tournament when Landon Donovan looked a a proper prospect, a proper player of of, of real quality as well. He's he best young that player day. he won, didn't he? At the tournament, there you go. So he and he and Brian McBride scored that day, and then. Their their quarter final on in Ulsan against against Germany, which was won by Michael Ballack. But there was there was controversy in that with a um there was a there was a handball I think from Torsten Frings, the German player that that wasn't given and the referee didn't give a penalty for it, which would have would have put the US level. And I think there was a I mean that I think they're still. I don't think they've forgiven either the referee or the... We're talking an awful lot about refereeing decisions in this, aren't we? We are, actually, aren't we? Yeah. Um, but either the referee or Frings, I think they're both, they're both still sort of considered to be villains over, over in the States with, with what happened there. But it was a, it was a, um, a, a resurgent tournament for, for the US, a real, you know, almost like a, this is what we're capable of tournament. And, and for the first time, I don't know. Almost for the first time, really looking as though they might have seized some of the momentum that they should have been generated back in '94 when they hosted the event. Really, um, I wonder whether, at some in some ways, they everything they've achieved or not achieved since at World Cups is is the fact that they got to the quarterfinals in 2002 almost hangs over the the modern day team that they have to really emulate this the success they enjoyed that year on a personal level. It was always a, also the first time that I ever, I ever interviewed a player from my own football club, the club that I support, Crystal Palace, uh, at a World Cup in a mix zone. Um, wow! And he's it was Greg Bahalto, who's currently the US national manager. Um, so uh, he was a sort of journeyman centre half, I'd suggest at the time. <laughs> but, but it was quite that again. <laughs> that count. was a bit of a novelty. Yeah, yeah. Take that. Take that. Yeah, it's like journalistic uh, top trumps or something like that I don't know the bucket list um, unfortunately all he said was that Crystal Palace wanted him out the door and he was oh. they were desperate for him to leave so it wasn't good it wasn't, story still it wasn't yeah it wasn't the most positive of pieces I've ever written but. the one thing that's sticking out to me in summary as well Laurie that it just seems a real shame that this amazing tournament and I'm I'm going to apologise to goalkeepers at this point but this amazing tournament with all these stories all these brilliant moments and the best player was named as Oliver Kahn <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think any tournament where the goalkeeper wins it, um, you're kind of thinking it's not been the most thrilling in terms of goal scored because you want it to be the guy who's top scorer. I mean, I'm surprised Ronaldo didn't win it. I mean, top scorer, you know, won the tournament. Um, I mean, I don't know when the voting was done or if, you know, Oliver Kahn, I, I guess he pulled off quite a lot of good saves, didn't he? And, and probably he was the reason more than anybody else why Germany got to the final, right? You know, in terms of the clean sheets um, and the fact that they could grind out these wins. So perhaps he was more pivotal to Germany's team than Ronaldo was to Brazil's team. But but, but Ronaldo scored two goals past Kahn in the final yeah. to win the tournament and doesn't win best player. That seems weird. I don't know. We need we need a uh, um, investigation. You know, in terms of dodgy decisions in the tournament, maybe that's the final one. <laughs> it was almost like, yeah, well, given given that all the established European old 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 school teams had gone out, we might as well might as well give 
give Germany one just to show that we still actually do love the old order a bit. <laughs> but I mean, he he was outstanding, and we, and we should remember. I mean, Germany getting to the final was fairly remarkable, given that they were hopeless at Euro two thousand, were hopeless at Euro two thousand and four. This is almost an outlier in between is, those two tournaments, and 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 also given that you know Das reboot and everything that happened in the build up to two thousand and six when they were hosting the tournament, um, they weren't kidded by the success that they had in getting to that final. Um, even though Khan was excellent, Michael Ballack was outstanding, and and you know his his absence in the final through suspension was a major major blow for for Germany, and we started to see the Miroslav closer, who would end up scoring so many goals over the next God knows how many years he played international football after that, but um, they, they were the sort of almost like a, a bit of a spine of a team there, but then the Germans they still recognised they were falling behind and they were gonna they were gonna act on that and hence Das Reboot and, and all the success they subsequently enjoyed. Okay, we're going to leave it there, but Dom and Laurie, it's been absolutely brilliant to do this with you. I hope you guys at home have enjoyed it just as much as we have recording it. Thank you to both of you. Thank you for listening as well. Remember, you can subscribe to The Athletic right now for just £1 a month. Head to theathletic.com forward slash football pod. But we're going to finish it with Adam Hurry's top two moments. Number four, meat pie sausage roll. My abiding memory of the 2002 World Cup was watching England's exit at the hands of Brazil on the steps of a packed beach bar in UK garage mecca Cavos. My friend Kat insisted on singing meat pie sausage roll come on England score a goal for the entire 90 minutes and I actually put that above England's inability to dominate possession against 10 men but still somehow below David Seaman's goalkeeping as one of the key reasons we didn't reach the semi-finals. It was an opportunity missed for England, but this one felt more distant, less painful. It wasn't Turin in 1990, it wasn't Wembley in 1996, it wasn't St Etienne in 1998, it wasn't Lisbon in 2004 or Gelsenkirchen in 2006, it just felt very, very far away. Number 5. Barry Davis Sometimes it's the nostalgic part of the brain playing tricks, sometimes the footage has just been quietly destroyed. But among the few golden commentary lines that some people are 90% sure were uttered but can't find a single trace of, this remains the holy grail. Deputy Headmaster Barry Davis giving Italy an almighty telling off for being dubiously knocked out of the tournament by South Korea. Four years later, Italy were world champions, so Barry, maybe they were listening. The Athletic.